Good morning, Westside Family Church. It is so great to see you here at Lenexa and the awesome people at Speedway, those of you watching online. We're so excited to have you here. If you're new, we are in this amazing journey called Unshakable. We want everybody of Westside to live out an unshakable faith, unshakable love. And one of the ways in we're doing that is we're taking our congregation and, and breaking us down into smaller communities called area communities. And we've been launching them quite frequently uh, uh, people who live around a certain elementary school area. So we've already launched the following communities, and if you've not gotten into it, we want to encourage you to reach out to us. Those of you who live in the Prairie Ridge Elementary School area, Horizons, Belton, Riverview, and we're in the third week of Manchester Park. They're meeting right now in the East Venue. This is their third week. They've met their area community shepherd. They're going to do life together. They're going to be the hands and feet of Jesus together. It takes this big church, makes it small, makes it personal. Super excited to announce that on October the 8th, we'll be launching two new area communities simultaneously. Here at Lenexa, we'll be uh, uh, launching the Lenexa Hills area community. Those of you who live in the Lenexa Hills Elementary School area, uh, on 9.30 on October the 8th for four Sundays, you'll experience worship together in the East Venue, meet your area community shepherd, learn what it's all about, and then hopefully join in with them. And then second will be those who live in Piper, the area of Piper, and it's actually going to be hosted at our awesome Speedway campus because Piper is where the Speedway campus is. So if you live in any of those areas, we'd encourage you to get involved in what God is doing among us. Are you ready to dive in? Boom. Way to go. I can always count on Jeff down here to be super excited. So I want to begin with a story, and it'll help set us up. Uh, a little bit. Um, about a month ago, I was in San Antonio visiting the grandkids, and I was on my way to the airport to come back to Kansas City. And uh, the GPS uh, took me uh, a certain route, and I was going down a, a, up in the hill country, going down a, a kind of a rural road where the speed limit was 65 uh, miles an hour, and I set the cruise control to 69 you know, the, the acceptable fudge factor, right? Some thinks, some thinks it's 10. I think it's more like five. No judgment here uh, at all, you know? And, uh, and then the GPS had me turn down this smaller ro ro uh, road, and, um, and the speed limit uh, changed from 65 to 35 in a hurry. But since I had never been on that road before, I didn't notice a sign. My head was all in getting to the airport and coming back and seeing you guys. And uh, so the constable was sitting right there, didn't give me a chance to find the sign. And, I, uh, and he clocked me going 58 in a 35 and uh, pulled me over. And I have not gotten a ticket for 25 years, you know, because I try to obey the law. And uh, he pulled me over and a uh, nice Texas guy with a little bit of twang. And he uh, told me I was going 58 and a 35. And uh, so I tried to wiggle my way out of it. Uh, I don't know what your line is, what you use, but I throw out, I'm a pastor. <laughs> and I just might have some additional connections that might get you a nicer place in heaven. And he wasn't buying it that day, and I got busted because I broke the law. And so uh, the question is, how much does it cost? What is the payment for breaking that particular law? The answer is $206. Uh -huh. <laughs> However, they got this cool deal that you probably know about where you can defer for an extra $20. 
It doesn't go on your record? So I'm down $226, and it's not going to show up on my record. Wouldn't you love life to work that way, where you could pay an extra 20 bucks and everything is like it never happened before? That would be so very, very cool. Now, I was just back in San Antonio this week, and I was coming back on Friday to be here, and the GPS sent me down the same road. And uh, I went this time, set the cruise at 65, not 69. And when I turned down this little street called Belverde uh, Road, I immediately dropped to 35 miles an hour. Learned my lesson. It worked. It did. And here's the thing. I think it's a bit ridiculous. However, Belverde is a little tiny town, and that law kept me from going 58 miles an hour, and maybe a little kid would jump out, and I wouldn't have time to stop. So not only did it save me from hitting a little kid, but it saved me from possibly having the guilt for the rest of my life of being a bit reckless. So in this case, the law is a good thing, right? Okay, now let me turn the corner and tell you another true story that's a lot more serious. So I have a friend who had a daughter by the name of Isabella. Here's a picture of Isabella when she was 19, uh, graduating from high school. Uh, she was 18, graduating from high school. When she was 19, uh, which was three years ago, she was in an apartment room and, uh, with a, another guy, a 29-year-old man, and uh, he gave her what she thought was oxycodone, uh, but it, it turned out it was fentanyl. And she passed out. And instead of calling 911, this guy abandoned the apartment, left her there alone, and she died. Well, his uh, trial just happened a couple of weeks ago, three years later. And Isabella, a beautiful girl, left behind uh, a, a, a baby as well. Here's a picture of Isabella with her baby and left behind this baby, as well as uh, broken-hearted parents, my friend, who's now raising uh, this beautiful child. Uh, so the trial came up, and the judge decided to let the guy walk for free. Yeah. But you got to admit, I mean, that's grace. I mean, to do something so irresponsible, and then to get to walk away free... That's grace. Oh, I love it. Now let me ask you a question. What if that were your daughter? How would you feel about the sentence the judge gave to this 29-year-old man? Maybe your answer would not be, oh, that's grace, that he gets to walk around free while their daughter has lost her life. Well, that's not exactly what happened. What happened was the judge gave the 29-year-old man 30 years. And he'll be walking out of prison if all goes well for him at the age of 60. And that seems a bit harsh, but I asked my friend, the father, how did the sentence make you feel? And he said, I'm, I'm thanking God for his mercy and that he has answered my prayer. Because why? Because things have to be made right, don't they? 
things have to be made right. Now, I want you to keep that story in mind as we drop into a very serious question that you guys have asked, and that is the topic of violence in the Old Testament. Violence in the Old Testament. And you're going to be, you ask three great questions, and I'm going to just tackle them one at a time, invite you to open up your website app if you're taking notes, because we're going to get a little thick today. The first question, the Bible mentions thou shalt not kill, but why were there killings, still killings happening even after that commandment? Now, the simple answer to that question is that people just don't obey the commandments of God. That's why they keep doing it. But what the person is really getting at is why is there so much violence in the Old Testament compared to the New Testament and much of it has been sanctioned by God? I don't get it. So let's start. Thou shalt not kill is the sixth of the famous Ten Commandments and these commandments were directed to individuals not to governments. That's very important. They were directed to individuals, not governments. So if you're taking notes, write this down. God established governments to execute justice. Not individuals, but governments. He's given this responsibility. Now, you've likely heard at least a portion of this passage of Scripture coming out of the book of Leviticus, chapter 24, that's laying out a wall of God. Here it goes. Anyone who injures their neighbor is to be injured in the same manner. Fracture for fracture, here it is, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. The one who has inflicted the injury must suffer the same injury. Whoever kills an animal must make restitution, but whoever kills a human being is to be put to death. That's harsh words. But it's the word of God, and it is the justification for a government to rightly execute on capital punishment. Because why? Because the God of the universe gave the right and the responsibility of governments to execute justice because things must be made right. There has to be restitution, proper restitution of evil or evil will become even more rampant than it is now. If I hadn't got stopped for the ticket, then never would have the opportunity to be stopped for a ticket, man. It would be Autobahn every day for Randy Frazee, man. I would be tearing down the road and making a big mess. And who in their right mind wants to live in a world where people get away with everything? Anybody? No. No. Principle number two, very important. God stands in judgment over human judges. God stands in judgment over human judges. I want you to look in at Psalm 82. Here we go. God calls the judges into his courtroom. He puts all the judges in the dock. Enough. You have corrupted justice long enough. You have let the wicked get away with murder. You're here to defend the defendless to make sure that the underdog gets a fair break. Your job is to stand up for the powerless and prosecute all those who exploit them. Ignorant judges, head in the sand judges, they haven't a clue to what's going on. And now everything's falling apart, the world's coming unglued. I appointed you judges, each one of you, deputies of the high God, but you've betrayed your commission and now you're stripped of your rank busted. Oh God, give them what they have, they've got coming. You've got the whole world in your hands. So God has established from above a check and balance system. God is 
has been and continues to hold all judges accountable for the decisions that they make. Now, with that laid as a foundation, let's drop into the difficult. Let's drop into the story that most pastors would probably skip over, but I'm going to try to dive into it. Okay, here we go. There is an instant in the Old Testament where God ordered the elimination of an entire group of people called the Amorites. What is up with that? Now, the Amorites were a group of people who lived in the land of Canaan, which is the land that God promised to give to Abraham's seed called Israel. God came to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 15 and told him he was going to give him the land of Canaan. But in chapter 15, he said, but I cannot give it to you quite yet. So what's the holdout? Genesis chapter 15 and verse 16, God is speaking to Abraham. In the fourth generation of your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its fullness. I can't give you the land yet because the evil of the Amorites hasn't reached its fullness. We know from history that the Amorites were an evil people. Uh, it just bled through them generation after generation. Uh, uh, the best example I can give you is when Roseanne and I, uh, five and a half years ago, were moving to Kansas, Missouri area to come up here to be with you. We thought we'd watch a, sort of a thematic show of the people in this area. So we uh, found a Netflix show called Ozarks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. That is a modern-day example of not just one evil person, but the whole bunch of them, generation after generation. We got through like three or four episodes of it, and we just couldn't go to sleep at night, and we stopped watching it, okay? It's a bit like that, but even worse. So the question is, just how sinful many Canaanite practices were there? Well, we actually know this from uh, archaeological artifacts and from their epic literature. Their worship was polytheistic. It included idolatry. It included religious prostitution, divination, and even child sacrifices. Now, because of our finiteness, we live 70, 80, 90 years on earth, we don't have an understanding of how a group of people can transfer sin and evil over generations and how it just dips into sing every single person within that, um, within that community. But God does, and he sees it. And the reality is, as you study the scriptures, is that God doesn't want the Amorites to perish. He doesn't want them to perish. He wants them to turn around. So the question becomes, how long does God wait before he executes this justice against the Amorites? From the time of Genesis chapter 15 and verse 16 to the time he sent Joshua in the land to conquer it and to wipe out the Amorites, the answer, 600 years. 600 years God waited and he wanted them to turn around. He wanted them not to perish. But not only did they not turn around, their evil continued to where it got to a point where we would have to challenge God if he did not intercede. Just like in the case of Isabella. 
We want God to intercede and say, that's enough. I can go no further. It would be wrong for me not to intercede. Now, you said that God would turn uh, away uh, his wrath if they turned around. Why do you say that? Well, we have this example with a group of people that lived in the capital city of Nineveh. Remember, they were evil. The Assyrians were evil, just like the Amorites. And God, once again, is going to have to execute judgment and justice and truth. But he sends the prophet Jonah, who reluctantly goes, and he preaches a sermon that has only eight words in it. Eight words. And the whole nation, beginning with the king, repents and turns to God. And it says that God relented and did not execute the justice against them that was going to be required, and this angered Jonah because he did not like the Assyrians living in Nineveh because of their evil reputation, and this is what he said to God in chapter, uh, Jonah, Job chapter four. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is why I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. God is patient in judgment. And all of us said, aren't you glad that God doesn't drop justice and truth on you at the moment, but gives you an opportunity to turn? God does this. But he is also a holy and a just God, and it is right and proper for him to eventually say, that's enough. There has to be justice. There has to be truth. And here's the deal. What I've discovered over the years is that we get mad at God because he allows bad things to happen to good people. God allows evil to exist. And then we turn around and get mad at him when he executes judgment against evil. Hey, you can't have it both ways. So I'm going to ask you to write this principle down. We do not stand in judgment of God. We do not stand in judgment of that. That is a holy com comment. You can try, but it's not good. Matter of fact, Job tried to, uh, to do it in the Old Testament, and, um, and this was God's response to him. God then confronted Job directly. I would have been scared spitless. Now, what do you have to say for yourself? Are you going to haul me, the mighty one, into court and press charges? Do you presume to tell me what I'm doing wrong? Are you calling me a sinner so you can be a saint? We do not stand in judgment of God and it is time for us to deal with the reality and stop worshiping the God we want and stop worshiping the God who actually is. Because I can tell you the God who actually is is better than the God you have configured in your mind. He is gracious, he is full of love, but he's also full of justice and full of truth. Okay, second question. What made the other people lesser than the chosen people for them to be conquered by the chosen people? Speaking of Israel, this is another great question. They're asking, why does God seem to show favor to Israel over the other people on the planet by allowing them to conquer their land? First of all, if you're new to the scriptures, God did start a brand new nation from scratch called Israel from Abraham. And they were chosen, yes, 
They were chosen for the purpose of bringing us the Messiah, the one who would give us a way to survive the justice of God, which certainly made them a special people. They were raised up from scratch to bring us Jesus. Now, Genesis chapter 15, God said, I'm going to have to wait until the evil of the Amorites reaches its fullness. 600 years later, we come to Joshua chapter 5, where Joshua is going to enter into the land of Canaan, and he's going to wipe out, begin to wipe out the Amorites 600 years later. When he is about ready to go into battle, he is visited by a very unusual character called the commander of the army of the Lord. Let's drop into chapter 5. Now, when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? The answer, Neither, he replied. But as the commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Joshua then fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy and Joshua did so. The truth is, Joshua did not beat the Amorites that next day. All they did was walk around the wall of the city seven days in a row and on the seventh day, they walked around it seven times. To my count, no one has ever been killed by people walking around, right? Because Joshua is not the one who took these people out. It was the commander of the army of the Lord that not only won that victory, but won all the other victories. But the commander of the army of the Lord clearly said, we are not for you and against them. It's not about who we're for and against. It's about the agenda that God has that's driving the decisions that he's making. He has a plan, and he's executing on that plan in love, in grace, in justice, and in truth. He's not working for our agenda. It's the other way around. The other way around. God was not just for Israel, but he was for other people. As a matter of fact, you will see throughout the Old Testament that God brought judgment and discipline upon the Israelites on many occasions, on particular occasion when the nation was divided by God's judgment and discipline. The northern nation of Israel, which was made up of the 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel, was sacked by the Assyrians and they were deported and they never reassembled again. They're called the lost tribes of Israel. God's justice is fair and equal across all people. So if you're taking notes, write this down. God chose Israel to bring all nations a solution to our sin and separation from him. And that solution is none other than Jesus, the Messiah, who came from the chosen nation of Israel. God loves all people equally and does not want to see anyone perish. Jesus was not just for Israel, but for all nations, for me and for you. Last question we're gonna deal with, here it is. It's a good one. How do I reconcile the God of the Old Testament, the anger and destruction, with the love of Jesus? That is a great question. Because as you read the Gospels, you see that Jesus lived out a life of love 
and called his followers to do the same thing. As a matter of fact, on numerous occasions, when he was asked to give the greatest commandments of all, he would say, to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. But the reality is, every time Jesus quotes the great commandment, he is quoting from the Old Testament. It was the rule of life, even for Old Testament individuals, to live out the great commandment to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. But this did not eliminate the need in the Old Testament nor in the New Testament for truth and justice, particularly executed by governments. The two can exist at the same time. Individuals can live by the royal command to love your neighbor as yourself, and at the same time, governments are called to execute justice in truth. Keep Isabella's picture and face before you. But you have to keep in mind that Jesus is an individual. And as an individual, he did model this unshakable love that we've been talking so much about and we so much want us to be on board with that we would live an unconditional and sacrificial love in front of our family, in front of our other church uh, followers of Jesus and amongst our neighbors and amongst the people around the world, just like Jesus did as an individual. But you must keep in mind that Jesus is not just an individual, but that he's God. And he's not just God, but he's called the judge. He is called the judge, and it is his responsibility to make things right. Point that you may not recognize or realize. Remember the commander of the army of the Lord that visited Joshua before the battle of Jericho? Most scholars believe that the commander of the army of the Lord is none other than Jesus himself that he is a pre-incarnate Jesus. Before he took on flesh and was lying in a manger, he appears on the scene as the commander of the army of the Lord. Google angel of the Lord. You'll see that in the Old Testament. It's in capitals letters because most scholars believe the reference of the angel of the Lord is in reference to Jesus himself. Jesus is not a mild, meek, milbatoast sort of guy, Jesus is a divine warrior, a divine warrior. If you're taking notes, write this down, very important. Jesus is full of love, but he is also full of justice, and you want both. Jesus is full of love, but he is full of justice. And the question is, how do we ultimately reconcile this? Give me just a few more minutes. The Bible teaches that Jesus is going to come back a second time. When he comes back a second time, he will not be a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger, but rather the Bible says the second time he comes back, in the book of Revelation, he'll be riding a white horse. His robe will be dipped in blood, and there'll be a sword coming out of his mouth where he is going to install the new kingdom, but before he does so, he's going to execute justice, and everyone will be judged for everything we have ever done. And as it turns out, for those of you who have struggled with God not taking care of evil, as it turns out, no one is going to get away with anything. Not me, not you. Romans chapter three, verse 10 says, there is no one righteous, not even one. Romans chapter three and verse 23 says, all have sinned 
and have fallen short of the glory of God. Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says, For the wages of sin is death. The price of our defiance against God, our sin, every single one of us, the price we must pay for justice to be served is death. And here we're not talking about just physical death, but we're talking about spiritual and eternal death and separation from God. God deems that to be the truthful and just response to our defiance against God. And there will be no deferral options. Pay an extra $20. It won't be available. Jesus is coming back to establish his eternal kingdom. He's coming back in the center of this new kingdom on earth. He's going to place the Garden of Eden there again, but now it's going to be a grand city. And just like sin was not allowed to occupy the Garden of Eden, remember, upon the sin of Adam and Eve, they were escorted out of the garden and two angels stood with swords, preventing them to go back in. So in the garden to come, sin will not be allowed there either. It must be taken care of. So in Revelation chapter 20, all people who have ever lived, it says, read it for yourself, great and small, will stand before Jesus the judge, and there will be books opened. The first book contains a record of everything, everything that we have ever done. Yikes! Every single person who has ever lived, save Jesus, will be declared guilty, and the evidence will be indisputable. Payment must now be made for the wrongs that we have done, and the Bible says that payment is death. So in Revelation chapter 20, we are told that we will be cast into the lake of fire and will experience what's called the second death. And as a righteous judge, this is what must be done. Right now, we don't see it. We see the Isabella story. But right now, we don't see from God's perspective. But I believe when we're all there, we will all recognize that the character of God has stood the test of time, full of love, justice, grace, and truth. It will seem right to us. But there is one exception. Listen in. There is one exception. There will be a second book there at the judgment. It's called the book of life. If your name is in the book of life, that's good. Because it means that you accepted an offer that Jesus made to you. He's made it to you today. And the offer is this. He came to earth as God, wrapped himself in flesh, lived among us a sinless life, and then we crucified him. We killed God. Now, Jesus is coming to us and saying, here's your one exception. If you want to and you believe in me, I will let you substitute my death for your death. So when you come to the final judgment, I will see your name in the book of life, and I will look you in the eye, and I will say, Randy, your debt has been paid in full by me, enter into the garden with me forever and ever. A place where there will be no more sin, no more death, no more tears, no more illness, no more 
violence. My debt has been paid in full. Remember the phrase in 623 of Romans, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Actually, if you study the scriptures, you will note that um, everybody's name is written in the book of life from the very beginning. Everybody's name is there. Everybody's name. Why? Because it turns out the blood of Christ is sufficient to pay for all of our sins. And God does not want anyone to perish. It is this desire that everyone would receive the free gift, the free offer of life. What happens as you read the scriptures is that the names are blotted out. When it becomes apparent that you or me have decided not to receive the free gift of life through Jesus, our name, which was there as God's intent for us to live with him forever, is blotted out and we are left to face the first book and the first book alone. Your final note, the justice of Jesus in the Old and the New Testament is reconciled through the love of Jesus on the cross. In that moment, he takes off his judge's robe and he steps down and shows you the nail prints in his hand and his feet and said, you are covered. So I ask you this question, is your name in the book of life? Have you received that gift? Father, we now come to you and we thank you for shooting us straight about the reality of life here and eternally. And I pray now that your spirit would move not only here, but our Speedway campus and those watching online, that people would be stirred by your spirit to receive the offer of Jesus and have their names remain in the book of life for that day. We pray this in the name of Jesus. And all of God's people said? Amen. Now we're going to come to the table of Jesus. Jesus invited us that we would remember his death until he comes. He's going to come back. He wants us to remember his death because his death is what gives us the opportunity to live eternally with him and abundantly now. The bread represents the body of Jesus. The cup represents that blood that cleanses us from all sins. So in this moment, in this holy, sacred moment, we remember the death of Jesus for our sake. Church, the body of Christ. Church, the blood of Jesus. I want to encourage you to stand to your feet now as we thank Jesus for his blood.